everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 195. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk about archaeological survey, what it was like when we both started, where it's at now, and where it's going. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Still on that creative kick that I've been on. The latest thing I'm working on, and I've got it sitting in front of me right now, is a little weather sensor for surveying. So one of the things that happens hmm. when you're doing total station surveying is you've got to have, well, you should have uh, atmospheric corrections. Okay. Just the corrections are on the order of parts per million. So it doesn't matter unless you're doing a lot of long distance runs. Mm -hmm. But I incorporated the atmospheric corrections into my program and I wanted a little handheld weather sensor that could tell me the barometric pressure and the the, uh, the temperature. And I have not been able to find one that just does those two simple things online, unless I want to spend a lot of money. So I'd been kind of goofing around with little things I could program. And I found the other day for just a couple bucks online, a little fairly accurate temperature and sensor chip called a BMP 280. Okay. And I had a Raspberry Pi Pico sitting around, which is a tiny little Arduino kind of thing that you program with Python. And I had a little display. And then I found somebody online had a description of doing exactly what I wanted to do. So I put them together and it worked. Hmm. And I've been modifying the code. And now I bought a slightly smaller microcontroller that runs on the same chip. And I just got that put together. And so now it's, you know, a little bit of programming, a little bit of soldering, there'll be some 3D printing and I should have a sub $20 little uh, pressure and temperature sensor gizmo that I can take with me into the field when I, uh, when I do surveying. And so uh, I'm pretty excited about that. And then the other big creative thing, and that's why I queued up today's topic is I'm starting work on a couple articles based off of the surface survey that I did at Lagash. Okay. So not the magnetometry survey, but the uh, the surface field walking collection kind of survey. 
yeah, so, uh, you know, still going hard with all these uh, creative projects. Uh, I think that being off Twitter is doing me a world of good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, hey, we didn't talk about this ahead of time, so it's kind of fun just to talk about it now. But, you know, when I had the RV that we had before this, we had really inaccurate temperature readings inside the refrigerator and the freezer. And we also didn't have mm. like super great seals. And I had a problem with the gas solenoid going out on that thing all the time. And and it mm -hmm. would, and I wouldn't know. So then all of a sudden it would just be warm inside the refrigerator. So Oof. I was looking for a way to monitor these. And we actually had a whole Victron energy set up and Victron and this is how I found what the link I just sent in the chat for you. Victron actually enabled the ability for the Victron devices to actually read these little sensors from a company called Ruvi, R-U-U-V-I. I think they're out of uh, the Netherlands or something like that. And these sensors are, they have the little coin batteries in them, like a 2032 or something mm. like that, that lasts forever. It does motion. So it'll, it'll, it'll tell you when there's movement, it does pressure, it does temperature and it does humidity. And I've actually got three of those or actually four of those spaced throughout the house. I've got one in the wine refrigerator because I'll tell you what, my wine better yeah. be at the right temperature and I'm going to get a warning if it's not. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> I know. And I've got, now we've got a residential fridge now, but since I already had these sensors, I put them in there anyway. I've got one in the freezer and one in the refrigerator. And then I've actually got one outside in our water bay because if our water pump freezes overnight when we're in these cold temperatures, it could crack and or do something bad to the water to the water pump. So I'm usually aware of what the temperatures are going to be. So I either put a little ceramic heater I've got in there or I make sure mm -hmm. our bay heat is turned on and, and is going in there. But just in case through the Ruby app, it will send me a push notification and alert on my phone if it's outside of a tolerance that I set up for temperature. And you can set other tolerances in there as well. So it's actually pretty cool. I think they were like 20 bucks a piece. I bought a pack of four of them and they've been just like super easy and super great and just Bluetooth to my phone. And you, you can get what's called a Ruby station too, that they will Bluetooth to that and that will connect to the internet. So you can actually read those from anywhere in the world. I don't have that, but I just have the, the Bluetooth sensors. So kind of another option for people looking for something like that. It's pretty neat. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I'm going to definitely take a look at that because my mom just had um, a bit of a catastrophe at her house where it's a fairly recent construction and they didn't put the pipes in her bathroom in the right place. They're mm -hmm. on, a, on an external wall. So while she was away, they froze. She lives in Minnesota. They froze, <laughs> cracked, flooded her house. Oh, my God. So yeah. now she's having, you know, repairs made. They've torn up half the floor, hardwood floor, mm -hmm. of course, you know, they've torn half of it up so that they can replace it. It's going to be a real mess, but something like this, if we could get it in, you know, in a place, maybe put an access panel or something yeah, so that we could get it in that wall, you know, we could monitor that and keep this from ever happening again. Cause I think it happened once before, just not as badly as it did this time. Yeah. And if you get the station and as long as your internet doesn't go down, so AKA your power doesn't go out mm -hmm. or you've, you got your router on uninterruptible power supply or something like that, if it's a real problem, yeah, you'd be able to do whatever you want. So this is actually really good for people listening to this to bring it back to archaeology, you know, people doing like collections management and stuff like that. Now, I mean, real mm -hmm. like legit museums, they have temperature sensors all over the place, but you may be working at a smaller place that's kind of in the back room of a little community museum or something. And, and something like this is a very affordable way to monitor the atmospheric conditions wherever you put the sensor. So, and it seems, seems pretty accurate. So, well, that's great. 
All right. Well, today's topic, you were thinking about this and we're, we're talking about the changing landscape of archaeological survey, as the uh, title indicates. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how survey is changing and should change. I've had continuing thoughts about drone survey and, you know, especially after I've mentioned this a million times on the podcast, but after working in China Lake around China Lake Naval Weapons Center, let me get the whole title in there. And after walking around where they say, hey, anything metal, don't touch it because it might explode, you know, call over the <laughs> unexploded ordnance specialist to check it out and report it in. I'm like, OK, that's not terrifying or anything. What are we even no. doing out here? <laughs> so, you know, that's when my my thoughts on drone survey first started to take shape. But what brought you to this topic for the podcast today? So, like I said, when I uh, on the intro, I was thinking about it because I'm currently working on a couple different articles based off of that surface survey that I did. And just to bring it back to the uh, to the podcast here is that when I started conceiving of this survey, which we started in the spring 2022 season of the Lagash project, and we completed in uh, in this past fall season, so you know just over a month ago now, I had some ideas and I want to discuss them. And so you and I discussed them on air on the, uh, on this podcast. And we got mm-hmm. some really good feedback on the Slack channel about things that I could do or things I could, should consider ways to display the data, ways to try to interpret the data. And I think that I've got a pretty good system. And so I'd like to write it up in a couple different formats. One would be more of a cookbook <laughs> to go back to what we were discussing <laughs> last episode, more of a cookbook uh, for AAP. And then another one, which we haven't decided the venue yet, it might be Sumer, uh, which is a Mesopotamian focused mm-hmm. journal, you know, scholarly journal. We really want that one to be co-authored by me and the Iraqis that I worked with when I was there. They're professionals themselves. They deserve to be on this. They did the bulk of the work, you know. So, right. uh, you know, I'll, I'll write it. They'll, we'll translate it. They'll go through, add their edits. We'll put together something that looks then at the results and tries to interpret the results. So, you know, the the first half, the first article will be uh, what we're doing. And the second half will be what we found out by what we did. So long-winded way of saying that I've been doing a lot of background research now on uh, on archaeological survey. I'm, hmm. I did a whole lot in the past. My dissertation itself was based off of a survey. Yeah. But I haven't kept up on the literature. I have a, an intuitive sense of what people have done and what you know, the, the, the overall landscape to reuse that term of the field of archaeological survey has been like, and I know that it's changed a lot over the years, but I need to, you know, if I'm going to be publishing things in scholarly journals, I need to be able to cite, I can't just say, oh yeah, I'm sure somebody did this. (laughs) That's just not going to fly. So I've been up to my ears in, uh, in journal articles, you know, some of the earliest stuff is goes all the way back to the sixties, but there's actually been a lot that's gone on over the last, uh, you know, 15 years or so. Basically, covering the time period between when I dropped out of archaeology as a profession and now that I'm back into it. Mm -hmm. So I've just had survey on my mind. And one of the things that strikes me all the time, especially with with, uh, respect to that Lagash surface survey is how much things have changed because of technology. You know, we've been sure. talking a lot lately about digital archaeology, and I feel like the digital around archaeology, whether or not we want to call it digital archaeology, has really made archaeological survey a much more 
viable. That's not quite the word I'm looking for. A, a much more of a, of an even partner to excavation in mm-hmm. terms of the uh, the tools and techniques that are brought to bear. So it's just, it's rattling around in the back of my head and kind of in the same way that I came <laughs> with a bunch of ideas rattling around in the back of my head to, to discuss how to start this project. I wanted to discuss with you, not really purposefully for these articles, but just kind of what has changed while you've been doing it. You and I have both been at you know, Archaeological Survey doing it for a couple decades now, and we've seen a lot of things change. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got a bunch of ideas. I'm just not going to run on forever and ever. But um, right. where would we want to start with this? Well, I think starting personally, I see looking at the things that have changed and probably will change and need to change in survey can be kind of put into two categories for me, at least for the things I'm thinking of right now. The first one is how we do the survey. I mentioned drone survey, you know, as a way to do like a pre-initial survey. So sending some sort of automated thing out there or satellite imagery that is of a really, 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 really fine resolution, which we don't really have Mm -hmm. access to yet, but we may at some point in the future, you know, or again, using drone imagery and AI machine learning to look at those images. And again, you would need something that is of the resolution where you can actually see the types of things we want to record, not just features, but artifacts and things like that. It could be that we send, you know, land-based robots or something out looking way into the future. I keep thinking of that Boston Dynamics dog thing that is just terrifying that just, you know, could have sensors on it that just I hate that thing. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) It lives near you, too. Like, it could just be in your backyard. No, it couldn't. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it will have a blanket thrown over it and dumped in the lake. I promise you. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so, so I see the method of us actually doing the survey as something that's definitely evolved. Our, our our thoughts around how we do that, the technology we use, you know, the the pre-survey type of stuff we do before we're actually boots on the ground. Those kinds of things have mm. definitely evolved. But then also, it's like how we record what we find and how we manage that. I remember seeing a paper, uh, what was it? It was at least five, six years ago, which means probably well before this, people were thinking about this, but there was a CRM company doing a massive survey where, you know, a lot of times when we're out there doing survey, like you and I have worked together, you're in a 30 meters apart or 20 meters apart, whatever the case may be. You're walking along when somebody finds something, everybody comes together, you scatter around that thing and you see if there's anything else close to it. If there is, if there's enough to qualify it as a site, you record it as a site. Well, Mm -hmm. the other method that I saw that was really intriguing, and I don't know if it's really caught on, was these people were basically doing a similar thing except they were much closer together. And if somebody found something, they searched in a 10 by 10 meter grid and everything within that 10 by 10 meter grid was recorded, point plotted on a GPS and saved. No sites were determined. They just Mm. recorded everything. And then they did that Mm -hmm. across the entire site and then used GIS and the rules over what makes a site to basically draw boundaries. They just simply didn't do it in the field. I don't know how they handle photographs and all that stuff as far as site photographs and things, but maybe they go back and do it. I don't know, but that was interesting to me. So that's, that's kind of where I see the conversation is what are we recording and how are we doing that? And then how are we actually collecting the data? Yeah. That's a nice way to break it down. I mean, between the planning and the doing, uh, (laughs) because they've both seen big changes and maybe let's jump into this after the break. But, um, but what, my way of coming at it is that in the academic world, the survey, even though archaeological survey has been part of doing field work since the start of the field, you know, it's it's over 100 years old. People had to know where the sites were before they could dig them. But that was the extent of it initially, you know, you want to locate the site 
and then you didn't care about how it was done or why it was done or anything else. The important thing was then having the site so you could so you could dig it. But what we've seen over the past couple decades is that archaeological survey has become you know, from being the little brother to excavation to being a peer. And a lot of that's come out of, or that's within the, um, within the academic archaeology sphere. But mm-hmm. within CRM, which is where you've come at it, it's, oh, you know, it has not had that same sort of kind of stigma against it that it has in academic archaeology. You know, it's, it's sometimes been the only thing that's done you know it's not done in service yeah. of excavation it's often done for its own ends the the way that these maybe it's the crm world having creeped into the academic i don't think so i think maybe it's probably yeah. just the availability of all these new techniques and technologies that have allowed the people who are doing the um, lesser kind of work to really <laughs> ramp up faster than those who are doing the the excavation. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just again, it's ideas just rattling around in my head, not directed in any particular way. Just trying to get a good sense of what has changed because I know a lot has, and I've been involved in a lot that has. And you know, keep it open ended, and let's see where we go. Yeah, exactly. Well. Let's see where we go at the end of the segment and into segment two. How about that? We'll take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Hey, archaeology podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 195. Chris and I are discussing surveying in archaeology. Well, not surveying like the total station kind of surveying, which I'm always happy to talk about, but the doing archaeological survey, finding sites, looking within sites, whatever, without necessarily digging and how it's changed. And Chris, you pointed out something really good that you start to outline the changes, not just in survey writ large, like I was thinking Mm -hmm. about it, but (laughs) between the planning and the doing. And I think that's a really good way of breaking it down. So let's dive right into these in that order and talk about the planning. What ways has planning archaeological survey for you as the owner of a CRM company changed uh, since you've been doing this? Yeah, I think it really comes down to, you know, budgets. You try to do things as cost effective as possible, which is a nice way of saying as cheap as possible. And mm-hmm. you want to, I mean, realistically, I mean, if we could employ everybody and pay them a, a great wage, then we would do that. But honestly, you, you have to find the best way to figure out what your survey area is going to be, how you're going to do it. You know, all that's going to happen, you know, along the way there and then put the people out on the ground. If you put people out on the ground too soon, and they've got to figure some stuff out. Well, now you've got people burning time at $150 an hour, you know, trying to figure out where they're supposed to go and, and what they're supposed to do. So, and, and that's a lot how I was directed. Wait a sec, wait a sec. I, I got to stop this. you right there. <laughs> $150 an hour? <laughs> well, okay. well, I got to talk to the people that employ me. <laughs> now, this is a good time to direct people to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, where we often talk about the difference between billable rates and your actual pay rate. 
<laughs> good good plug there for those for the Sierra Mark podcast, Paul. <laughs> so I mean, honestly though, mine mine isn't even 150. I think my billable rate there's usually like a multiplier. So if I'm paying somebody, I don't know pull out a round number, like $30 an hour. My multiplier is about 2.4, I think. So that means my billable rate for them is somewhere around $70 an hour, give or take. Mm -hmm. And that just means, you know, I'm able to cover obviously my insurance, my expenses, all that stuff that's not covered in your hourly rate, plus your taxes, right? So whatever taxes you pay, I'm also paying. So yes, as a business owner, you have to figure out all those things. And when it comes down to it, like the survey that we did with a couple other companies out in Nevada a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, we spent a lot of time, me and the other two company owners, one of them was working on the GIS side, one of them was working on the report, and my company was focusing mainly on the survey itself. But those two companies, you know, one of them, she's collecting all this data from the Forest Service saying, okay, what are we recording? What makes a site? You know, where are all the previously recorded sites? Getting those into a GIS. Mm -hmm. And then the other guy looking at the GIS is doing like, you know, slope analysis because we're not recording over certain slopes. We're identifying all the roads and we're putting all that on a maps before we even go out into the field and do any survey. So realistically, we should just be able to walk up to an area and we know we have to survey here. We know about what we're going to find if there's previously recorded sites and we get on it and we do it and that saves time. So from a very limited standpoint, that is how we make things a little bit more efficient. Now, if we had a lot more money, we may have incorporated a lot more like maybe satellite imagery or like I said, even drone flights and things like that. But, you know, oftentimes there just isn't the time for that at scales that I work at. Yeah. Well, that's Snope. Snope. <laughs> that slope analysis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that you just mentioned was, was actually one of the things I was thinking of because that mm-hmm. I could really imagine that as a, uh, a business owner, th- th- that's huge, right? If you can pre-write off a certain amount of, uh, of territory that has to be covered because it's hazardous, so, you know, you cannot physically safely go and, and survey it, uh, that gives you the opportunity to give the client a much better estimate of, uh, of how long it's going to take and how much yes. money it's going to take. So that that's a big one. And that wouldn't always have been possible. But now with the rise of GIS tools, it's fairly easy. I mean, the big gotcha in it is, of course, the quality of the uh, of the base imagery that you've got <laughs> yeah. that, that, you know, those, those DTMs <laughs> that tell you what the, that the, you're going to extract what the slope is from, you know, and but what we found and to the credit of the guy that was doing the GIS was that it was pretty good. You know, there weren't many places that he marked that we shouldn't go that uh, that we could have gone. And conversely, there weren't many places that we didn't want to go that he didn't already flag. So, you know, yeah. And that's that, that I think is another thing has changed, which is the quality of information coming from the client, especially a big one like the one we were working with. You know, they're they're managing a lot of land across both BLM and Forest Service uh, leased properties. And they already had really high resolution, detailed imagery and digital elevation models of their entire property. Mm-hmm. And they let us they gave us access to all of that. If we didn't have that with these highly sloped areas and these mountainous terrains, we'd have been in a world of hurt trying to get to some places that ultimately we didn't even have to survey. You know what I mean? Just to yeah. get there to find that out. So yeah, we took the total acreage that we had to survey, which was in the tens of thousands and dropped probably 70% of it out because of slope. 
because of cliff sides yeah. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And man, just the, I mean, this, this project would have been several million dollars instead of, you know, a fraction of that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, having been on that survey team, I'm thankful that we didn't have to climb <laughs> up and down <laughs> every slope because all those were uh, really, really were treacherous. Yeah. And you're already but starting at high altitude things. too. Yeah, yeah, the, the availability of that imagery, you know, whether it's a LIDAR imagery that's provided by a private company, uh, mm-hmm. most of the states, I believe, in the in the U.S. now have LIDAR imagery that you can download. I've used that myself. Actually, without throwing anybody under the bus here, I did a project, I was working on a small project, and we were asked to find a building that we knew existed in an area. And the person had asked us to do a couple test trenches, and he located where we were supposed to work. And we looked and decided that what we were told was not actually the correct location. After the project wrapped up, I found New York State had some LIDAR data freely available, downloaded it, looked at it, and could see the footprint of the building where we had figured that it was, as opposed to where we were told it was going to be, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, even yeah. though that building was long gone. <laughs> you know? So the planning with available imagery, that's a huge thing, because when I was doing my dissertation, the available imagery that I had when I started in 97 versus when I finished the fieldwork data collection in 2004 across those six, seven years was tremendous, the amount of things mm. that became available. And not just new, higher resolution things, but other things that the model for the accessing them had changed. So I used to have right. to like get permission and pay money to maybe the government body that collected it. I can't even remember who at this point in order just to access it to determine if it was going to be useful for me or not. And by the end of it, it was like, yeah, just sign up for our free account on our website and download it at your leisure. (laughs) You're totally right. That has changed so much in in just the past few years. I, I remember that even when I first started doing my own projects for my own company in Nevada, just like 10 years ago. And, you know, just even getting... USGS topo maps was a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just trying to trying to find those and and pick them up. But now they're they're almost available just about anywhere, and they're they're updated and really good. And you know all the other imagery and different things you might need that's usually accessible somewhere. You may still have to pay for it in some cases, depending on who collected it. But in, in general, if it's a government resource and you don't need a paper copy of something, you can take a digital one. You can almost always get it for free. You know, if it's like a map or something like that. So. Yeah, you're still going to pay for paper copies if you need those. But if you just need the files, I mean, more often than not, you can just get those. So that's really good. Yeah. And then, you know, parallel to that is, you know, which we've already mentioned is the use of GIS and how it went from being kind of, you know, when I started in the 90s, it went from being a niche thing to being something that's expected. And it's expected that every company above a certain size has GIS specialists on Mm -hmm. every academic project has a GIS component and every archaeologist is at least conversant with GIS, if not, yeah. you know, facile with it. So um, that that has been really cool to me as somebody who's always liked it. It just it's a set of tools or a way of looking at the world that that always just intuitively resonated with me. You know, I'm really curious about the availability of this kind of data in other countries. And I have no doubt that we're going to have a spirited conversation with our Belgian friend who's a member mm. of the Archaeology Podcast Network. He, he always frequently comments with really insightful things to say on a number of our shows, especially the Archaeotech episodes. So looking forward to that. If you want to join in in that conversation, arcpodnet.com forward slash members, and you can join our Slack team and, and continue the conversation. But otherwise... 
Paul, you know, I don't know how much you've been involved in the planning stages aside from, say, Lagash and some of those things right over there. But mm-hmm. in some of the other projects you've done in other parts of the world, do you have any sense of the availability of this kind of data in those places? It's uh, it's variable. I mean, a lot of places that I've worked still the best topo data unless you have access to you know something that was done by say a, a geological firm a uh, an oil company or a military and those are all you know usually held pretty close <laughs> to the vest some of the best imagery we've got for elevations is uh, is still srtm uh, hmm. which is not nearly detailed enough for really anything that i would ever do right which is a shame, you know, it's good on landscape scales, but not on landscape with the detail that archaeologists like to look at the landscape. Right. So okay. my, my my impression thus far has been that it's pretty hard. Now, that said, a lot of aerial imagery, like spy satellite imagery, has become readily accessible. And so people that I work mm. with have gotten access to that. And that's also interesting because most of it dates to the 80s and earlier and it gives us a a view of the landscape and the landscape changing at a fairly high resolution resolution that requires us to yeah I mean the, the tools that we currently have available say your you know your Google Earth or your Google Maps or whatever but it requires that over a period of time so if you're looking at in the Lagash case we're looking at the Lagash the site of Lagash in the 80s when it was being excavated in the 70s when it was being excavated we got some stuff from the 60s or the 50s and you know and you can tie those then in with other historical documents and try to understand the landscape in a in a different way maybe not strictly an archaeological way but it does give uh, us a perspective that we didn't have prior and that again that's nothing new other than the new availability of these things because in the height of the cold war <laughs> nobody was going to get, divulge any of that but now some of these uh, yeah. these images sets are, are available which is again a long-winded way of me is saying that yeah it's 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 extremely variable from country to country and not just country to country but where you are in country to country yeah where you are and what it is that you want to see but if you want something very current very accurate it may not exist or may not exist where you have access to it but overall the access to these things has gotten better and uh, more comprehensive over time Okay. Well, let's take our final break and come back on the other side. In the meantime, you can really help us out by looking down at the device and seeing what you're listening to this podcast on. And if it's Apple Podcasts, go leave a review or at least a rating. Let us know how we're doing or what you hate and, and, you know, call us a bunch of frauds. That's okay. We can take it. And we take reviews on uh, Spotify as well. And and you know what? If you want to let us know that you did that, because those services don't let us know, you know, hit us up on, you know, you can send me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Uh, Paul's contact information is also in the show notes. You can just look down and you can see that. So send us a send us a note and let us know that you left a review if you want to. Otherwise, we really appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute for segment three. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 195. And we're talking about the changing landscape of archaeological survey, as the title suggests. And we're wrapping up this topic in segment three here, Paul. Where do you see things going from here? What 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 have we got left to talk about regarding uh, archaeological survey changing as you see it? So from the academic archaeology perspective, what I've seen change is as it becomes more and more of a peer to excavation, it's being applied at a variety of different scales, right? And so there's this mm-hmm. greater understanding. Maybe this is coming out of the GIS world, you know, where we're thinking about the world and landscapes at, at a variety of different scales and phenomena at a variety of different scales and effects. 
But whereas, like I said, initially it was to find where the sites were that you're going to excavate. Then through landscape archaeology, there's a lot of uh, a lot of interrogation of what the relationship is of different sites and non-site areas too. But then some of the same tools, and this is kind of where my my Lagash survey comes in. Some of the same tools can be applied not just between sites and to locate sites and around sites, but actually within sites. And again, this is nothing new. The work that I've done in Lagash in many ways builds off of work that was done by Elizabeth Carter in 1984 on the same hmm. site. So this has been going on for quite a while, but it, and maybe it's just me and maybe it's just the things I've been reading, but it seems like there's been just a growing appreciation and a growing comfort with the tools of archaeological survey in archaeology writ large, both academic archaeology and, uh, and CRM archaeology. And a big part of that is I think that, you know, the tool set that we're using for actually doing it is converging. Right. Right. So, you know, we, we were discussing GIS and that gets applied in multiple scales. We've, I'm sure, reviewed articles on this podcast where we, uh, where people are using the tools of GIS for analyzing things at the level of the trenches and the, uh, the architecture within those trenches. So it's not just a landscape tool anymore, but archaeologists are using it for fairly small things. You know, so I, I think that that's just kind of an underlying theme of what's happened. But then as those tools converge, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of different tools that I could point to in, that we use daily in a bunch of different ways. And I think the interesting thing about that, right, is, and especially, I mean, we have a kind of a different view on this because of the, we're always talking about these things and we talk to people who are of like mind because otherwise we probably wouldn't be talking to them. But I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like the industry as a whole, especially like CRM and then, you know, academia, it seems like they're always, because people have to do unique research and different things, they're always trying to find some way to, to kind of do something new, it seems. So that's kind of pushing things forward. But from a CRM standpoint, even though there's still definitely people out there that are doing like, you know, the same thing they've always done, old school methods on on doing certain things. I think what's changed is they know they should be doing something different <laughs> versus mm. like 10, 15 years ago. They're like, oh, you know, this is how it's done and, and, and we're going to do this thing. But now they're like in the back of their mind, I feel like they know that they could be doing more. They know that there's there's something else that they could apply to this survey to make it better, to make it easier, to make it more efficient, you know, something like that. And I think that shift mm -hmm. is really starting to happen. It's probably a generational shift, to be honest with you. But it also could be things like, I mean, not to toot our own horn, but things like this podcast and other papers and other journals highlighting the technological advances that people are making in archaeological survey and beyond and that being more ubiquitous and, and just kind of getting in people's brains. You know what I mean? So much like digital mm -hmm. archaeology, removing the word digital and assuming it's all digital archaeology, I feel like archaeological survey is set for a paradigm shift a little bit where it's really going to be changing in the next like 10 years on how we do it. Yeah, I think that you're right. And I think that actually the change may have uh, have already started or mm. happened yeah. even it's just yeah. the uh, the reception of it is changing and we may see that full receptions change to the point that you know one doesn't have to necessarily specify archaeological excavation or archaeological survey and just says archaeology and it's understood yeah. that it could be either or both or one side or the other weighted one way or the other depending on the uh, the needs and that there isn't that kind of hierarchy of well, you found it in survey, but that's, what does that really tell us? I mean, mm -hmm. and 
we who do survey know that there are all sorts of complicating factors, taphonomic processes, questions of chronology, displacement of objects, blah, blah, blah. But if we have a, a, a set of tools that we're using and a set of methods that we're using that can then assuage people's concerns that, uh, is that real archaeology? I think that, that we're really <laughs> getting close to that point, you know, yeah. uh, if we haven't already crossed over into it. Yeah. But just like you said, you know, as, as we've kind of crossed over into it, the tools are becoming more readily available too, right? Like just take photography, for example. I mean, Absolutely. I know when I, when I first started out, you know, we had point and shoot cameras on almost every project that weren't even digital SLRs. Like a lot of them were just point and shoot digital mm-hmm. cameras. At least they were digital. I didn't really, I, I came in when the only thing that was really using film, maybe, and, and this was right at the beginning of my archaeological career was architectural stuff had to be taken with a black and white camera. That was a film camera mm-hmm. that had to be developed in certain states. That's all transitioned to digital. Now, as far as I know, there may be some still still some holdouts, but it's hard to find the film and hard to find a place to develop it. And, and agencies know that. So so that is starting to change, too. But just like. The, the digital photography or photography, as we call it, we can drop the word digital now because pretty much photography is all digital. And not only that, but nearly everyone has something in their pocket that can do light photogrammetry with a free app they can download from the app store. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, th- that tool, that phone, you know, we've mentioned it before, but the, the way that, that that phone that sits in your pocket that you've got with you all the time <laughs> has, has really consolidated and transformed so many of the things that we do, made it so much easier. I mean, there's a saying with photographers, the best camera is the camera that you have on you. Right. (laughs) You know, don't obsess about having the best gear because, you know, if you have the best gear, but it's sitting home locked in a safe, it's not going (laughs) to take a good picture at all because what you really need is that camera that you have on you when you see that perfect sunset or, you know, the the once in a lifetime event that happens. Yeah. Uh, But the digital photography, I mean, that that's huge for me, for me, probably more than anything else that's transformed the way that I do my work. Cause when I started in archeology, span it was still film mm-hmm. and I w- was brought on a number of projects as the photographer. Yeah. And I would go out into the field with two SLRs, one that was loaded up with color slide film and one that was loaded up with black and white. The black and white would be for the, uh, for the publications and the color slide would be for the slideshows. So there wasn't the ability to print things in color. There wasn't the ability to distribute PDFs of your report in color on the web. None of that existed. One was a print format and the other was a slide carousel at a lecture uh, format. (laughs) And that was it. Yeah. So, so the advent of digital photography is really, I'm using the word digital, but uh, you, know, you know what I mean, has yeah. really changed the way that we do photography. And then, like you said, on the phones, and that's opening up a lot of other things. I mean, we laid out, uh, this is an excavation, not a, not a survey, but we laid out a trench last season. Using the, uh, the measuring app on my phone <laughs> you know, and the compass on my phone uh, yeah. in order to, to lay it out. You know, we, we refined it with, with tapes, but, uh, sure. but it got but us pretty close. really close. Yeah. Uh, so th- that's a huge change. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And the other big change, and I know you are itching to talk about this that I've seen is <laughs> how we record non-photographic or sometimes photographic data. Uh, yeah. And that would be tablets. Yeah. And, and not only that, but tablets is actually almost for me transitioned right back to phones for survey and, and tablets are more mm. of an excavation tool because of the, the screen size and what you're doing on it. But to that point, it was tablets that came out a lot more 
a lot more, I, th- I think a, a few steps ahead of the phone, actually, when, when like the first iPad came out as an example. I bought the first iPad when I was in grad school, mm-hmm. April of 2010, when it was first released and, you know, spent all my money on it. And, uh, you know, because I was a poor grad student, <laughs> but I bought it anyway <laughs> and immediately started looking at ways I could use it for archaeology. And I, I actually used it for mm-hmm. data recording in our shallow geophysics course over the summer. It overheated many times because the Georgia, uh, Athens, Georgian summer is uh, no joke. So I'd have to put it in the mm-hmm. in the van and, and cool it down in the air conditioning or something like that. But, you know, the GPR was overheating, too, so I didn't feel too bad. But that being said, tablets have come a long way. And when we're out doing survey, we almost rarely actually bring a tablet anymore. We might have one that has like our maps and stuff on it. And maybe we're doing GIS on that tablet just because it's a bigger format. And that's the one connected to our submeter GPS. But Aside from that, all the recording and all the little things are just, they're happening on a smartphone because they're big enough and it's like people are used to typing with their thumbs and you could just do that really quickly. So I still see tablets as a really strong resource for excavation because you can, you can even take like an overview photograph and draw on top of that rather than freehand or using somebody else in a plumb bob, you know, those kinds of things. But you can, uh, uh, if you're still even drawing, you know, plan views and things like that, but you know. There's there's a lot you can do and you got to use the right tool for the right job, but they've both come so far. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned tablets like that, because uh, maybe this is a point in uh, in this argument that I'm making that, that the higher tech stuff comes in via survey before it gets to excavation, because all the excavations I've been involved in lately use paper still. Right. And it drives me crazy sometimes, but they have their <laughs> systems and it works for them and they don't want to change it. They don't want to shake it up. Pretty much every survey that I've worked on recently is tablets with mm-hmm. no paper component, you know? yeah. with the exception of like labels that go on bags or something. You know? So that's interesting. And then also back where intersect survey in particular is, and you just mentioned it, having the GIS on the tablet, that mobile GIS capability is groundbreaking. I mean, it was yeah, it's it's huge. absolutely central to what I did with the Lagash survey, but I'm not the only one doing it. And I'm certainly not the only person to think about it. And that's because that's the other big technological change that happened since I started this is uh, GPS, GNSS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's come so far and it's gotten so accurate on different devices. And, and not only that, but like the submeter GPSs that you can get have come so far down in price that they're pretty affordable for companies at most sizes. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, even if you're not using it in that case, I guarantee you that everybody that's doing survey right now is using Google Maps or something very similar to find out where they're supposed to get the car to on the site. Right. <laughs> and, and so just that that kind of really prosaic integration of what used to be high end technologies, GPS, you know, this high resolution screen on the cell phone, the the turn by turn navigation, whatever it is, uh, you know, when you started, you were probably working off of paper maps, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you'd be given a paper map said and told where the the, uh, the land was, you had to go survey. And somebody may have scrawled on, you know, to go through this gate. Or many, you know, make the, or they'd written out directions by hand, you know, turn at the big tree, Absolutely. something like that. And yeah. now you can get your your exact directions where you've got to go. And we don't think too much about it anymore because it's become so common. Yep. And that's totally true, man. It's changed so much just in the, you know, I've only been doing surveys since, uh, well, realistically about 2005, right? So about 17 years, but 
it's just so different from that early shovel testing back in, you know, Florida, South Carolina, and, and the, the information we were given and how we were expected to work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like one person out there may have had the Trimble because they were uh -huh. $10,000. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're still not super cheap, but there's other ways. Like there wasn't even, you know, wasn't even common for somebody to have just like a handheld GPS so they could keep themselves on track at a, at a course scale. It's, it's, it's all changed so much. And we've got just a handful of more things to talk about here um, before we close out this show. But man, things have, things are really advancing quickly, I think. The GPS one just floors me because when I first used it on my dissertation in 97, I had to borrow a fairly expensive one from my advisor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the uh, The grad student that was in charge of it wasn't thrilled with letting me use it, but he figured that they weren't using it <laughs> at that time. So my, I might as well. And it was slow. It was one antenna. It would We still had mm -hmm. selective availability, so it wasn't very accurate on its own. And then that accuracy was further degraded by, uh, by the military degrading the signal intentionally. And then, you know, so yeah. you'd set it out, you'd wait for a thing, but at least I had a real point that I could point to on the map. And then mm -hmm. the next time out, I had a much faster one that had like, I don't know how many antennas, 12, maybe it could track 12, uh, 12 satellites at a time, I think. Yeah. You know, and th that was getting better. And now we have things that are, you know, sub-centimeter not in the handheld, you know, consumer space, but the thing that you've got on your phone or on your GPS enabled tablet are, are really good anyhow, certainly better than what we used to have. And yeah, that, that's just been revolutionary to me too. Almost not quite as close as the digital photography has, but, but, you know, for me, a close second. And then with the tablets, because that's where I tend to interface with my GPS is now in the mobile GIS on my tablets. And that's just this confluence of all sorts of different things. And then I take that tablet or that phone that's helping me with the GPS and I mount it on the top of the controller and I fly my drone. Mm -hmm. There you go. Drink. <laughs> <laughs> I had to end up with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think just to wrap up here, I mean, obviously drones, we've been talking about those for, you know, at least a decade now, seriously in archaeology and probably earlier for some people. But the what you can do with drones, what they're capable of, you know, the different the different things that we're, you know, attaching to them and different sensors and stuff like that. It's just getting better and better. And then combining that technology mm -hmm. and your digital photography and and all the other keys to and components to to a survey and applying that to what I think is probably the most cutting edge thing that we're doing today. And only a handful of people are really doing this in any meaningful way. But that's machine learning mm -hmm. and using AI and machine learning to really start taking the guesswork out of things and the, and the human bias and error that we can put in that we don't even know that we're doing and really get some solid, strong answers. People might disagree with that, but I think when it's taught properly, because the key word to machine learning is learning, it, it has to learn correctly and understand what its inputs are in order to give good outputs. But I think it's going to be the thing that really changes archaeology and not only that, the world, to be honest with you, going forward. Yeah, I'm a little less um, less convinced of you that it's going <laughs> to remove bias, but it is going to be a huge tool. And in fact, we're with the magnetometer data from Lagash, we're starting to explore the opportunity to analyze it with machine learning. It seems like it would be a good project for somebody's master's paper in computer science, for example. So yeah. you know, it's it's definitely it's something we're going to be pushing forward. And to wrap it back up, it's going to be something that helps us identify where and how and why we're going to do the surveys. And then at the tail end, it's going to help us 
with the analysis of the data that we produce, that we generate, that we collect. And back to your point about the learning, hopefully that gets fed right back in and it becomes a virtuous loop of better source data, better outputs working their way back in as source data. Nice. All right. Well, with that, I think we will end this show. Again, if you want to continue the conversation with us and tell us how it's going in in your area where you work or your country, then join us and our fellow members to the Archaeology Podcast member and, and fans of the show over on our Slack team. And you can do that by joining us at either a monthly or annual rate, which is pretty affordable when you look at all the other things that we're paying for out there. It's usually cheaper than like a venti latte from Starbucks every month. So <laughs> think about that and you can help us keep the lights on over here. Arcpodnet.com forward slash members. And we'd really appreciate it. So with that, thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.